in a chariot of light from the regions of day the goddess of liberty came ten thousand celestials directed the way and hither conducted the day a fair budding branch from the gardens above where millions with millions agree she brought in her hand as a pledge of her love Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And what you're just listening to was the song Liberty Tree, written by none other than Thomas Paine. And we will be continuing with our study of the writings of Thomas Paine in this episode, focusing mostly on Crisis 8 through 10 and a few other essays that he wrote in that time period. Uh, this section will cover roughly 1778 until early 1782, so really finishing up with the uh, the the fighting of the war because fighting pretty much died down after the battle of yorktown in 1781 although the peace wasn't worked out until until 1783 um the first essay here and of course i'm reading through the library of america version of these books like always so um, if you have these it's starting on page 211 the first little essay we have here is a 1778 letter to henry lawrence which suggests some of Paine's values in regard to social hierarchy. It's something that I think sets Paine, a, you know, a little bit different from other founders in that he was less, he was more democratic. A lot of the other founders of the United States were very Republican in this idea that there had to be a little bit of a social hierarchy, that there were social betters that should, should lead people who had, you know, who had virtue. Paine was more directly democratic. And here's what he writes in this letter. The first useful class of citizens are the farmers and cultivators. They may be called the citizens of the first necessity because everything comes originally from the earth. After these follow various orders of manufacturers and mechanics of every kind. They differ from the first class in this particular, that they contribute to the accommodation rather than the first necessities of life. Next follow those so-called, or those called merchants and shopkeepers. These are occasionally convenient but not important. They employ nothing themselves as the first classes do, but employ their time in exchanging one thing for another and living by their profits. End quote. He ends this by saying that he's a farmer of thought, so he's kind of of the first class. So I, I, want, I want to go so far as to say this is an anti-capitalist message, although we can certainly borrow it if we want to have an anti-capitalist point of view. It's more just that he almost he, he has a Confucian idea in that the primary foundation of society is the farmer. And the, the merchants are just people who swap things around. They're not really creating things of, of value. Next, we have uh, written in 1779 in March a response. I think is it? Sorry, it's. October 1779, his response in the Pennsylvania newspaper to the riot outside of James Wilson's home. So what happened here? Well, Wilson, James Wilson, one of the founders, a supporter of the American Revolution, he was targeted by the Pennsylvania mob for defending the property rights of some loyalists. Uh, radicals are trying to take loyalist property, and James Wilson's defended the loyalists from having their property seized. Um, and basically, the mob targeted Wilson and targeted his home. And fighting broke out at Wilson, the Wilson Fort, Fort Wilson, as his home was called. In the fighting, six people died. Several others were wounded. Payne's response to this is a reflection on his broader, the I guess, the border between war and peace. I think that's what this essay really is about. 
Paine wanted peace and war boundary, the boundary between these two things, to be as broad, as well-defined, and as generous as possible. He was uncomfortable with his idea that you know, civilians would be targeted unnecessarily. In, in some of the crisis letters, he makes it very clear that the loyalists are on the wrong side of history. But he's also very generous with them and says that as soon as peace comes, you know, we'll be generous with them. You know, of course, if their property needs to be seized for the war effort or something, I think Payne supported that. But he did not want to see civilians targeted very much. And he did want to have a very magnanimous approach towards people who are loyalists. And as we'll see later on, he, he had the same attitude towards the former King Louis XVI, Louis Capet, who he did not want to see executed. But here's what he says here. He says, quote, it generally happens that distresses in the forerunner of benevolence. It's it, At least it serves to quicken into action that which might otherwise take a long time to awaken. The sickness, which has so generally prevailed throughout the city, added to the misfortune already mentioned, has been the means of setting on foot two well-intended subscriptions. The one for the relief of the families of those who were killed and wounded on the fourth instant, and the other for relief of the sick and distressed in the several wards. Both have been liberally supported. And most of the people, both in and out of the house, who could afford it, have been ample contributors. How different this to the spirit of rancor which generally accompanies, and most assuredly succeeds, premeditated domestic feuds. It calls back the minds of state of serenity and shows by the most convincing proof that the affairs now too later to be remedied was not the quarrel of enemies or of parties, but of the unfortunate blunder of friends. So his idea is, is to really, this should be a lesson about the peace and almost a lesson of what should happen to the United States after, after the fighting ends, that there should be relative peace between these, these, these former belligerents. And that would include loyalists. So this gets us to Crisis 8, published in February 1780. And by this time, the war's focus had been shifting to the south. Um, as you maybe learned in your U.S. history courses, uh, after the Battle of Saratoga, the British strategy shifted to the south. The southern strategy of the British was based on the idea that the south was home to a larger percentage of loyalists. Uh, this proved not to be entirely true, maybe a few more in the South, but um, you know, I think Lord Dunmore's proclamation, which freed slaves, may have undermined a lot of the support the British may have had in the Southern states where slavery was more deeply entrenched. But anyways, the strategy was to seize the city of Charleston and then from there build up a new base of support. Now, as Payne has already been talking about in some of the other crisis letters, once the British failed to put down the rebellion early on, the best they could do is essentially play a game of whack-a-mole. You know, maybe defeat the patriots in one place, but, you know, that's not going to actually occupy the country. He never really had much belief that the British could ever win their war with their strategy. But here's the strategy here. Failing to win in the north, they'd move to the south. So this is a very short document addressed to the people of Britain, Britain asking them, frankly, why to continue the war effort. And this is another theme we have in a lot of the crisis letters, especially those directed towards the people of England or the generals. And that is, what do you hope to gain here? Here he pushes it a little beyond just about the possibilities of success and towards an argument that the war itself is really defending a political system that is causing them misery right now. Right. Think, he says to the people of England, how much suffering you're experiencing due to the war. In an earlier crisis letter, Payne hinted that the political system of England could be undone easily. You go to my previous episode for that. 
Here we see him telling the people of Britain directly that maybe they want to undo their own political system if they want to have a prosperous and peaceful existence in the future. Quote, to what persons or to what system of politics do you owe your present state of wretchedness is a matter of total indifference to America. They have contributed, however unwillingly, to set her above themselves, and she is in tranquility of con she in the tranquility of conquest resigns inquiry. The case now is not so properly who began the war as to who continues it. That there are men in all countries to whom a state of war is is the mine of wealth is not is a fact not to be doubted. Characters like these naturally breed in the putrefaction or di of distempered times, and after fattening out of the disease which they perish with it, or impregnated with the stench, retreat into obscurity. And then he goes on to make the case that the British really need to, or the people of England really need to think about changing their political system if they want to have a system that does not provide opportunities for these parasites to, um, to thrive. And again, another common theme of the crisis letters is that democracies, republics, don't fight wars. Now, history has proven this not to really be the case, but Paine at the time really believed that the path to peace was really commerce and, and peace. Or in democracy. The path to peace was commerce and, and democracy. People's rule. People are not going to fight uh, unless they're forced to by tyrants. We also get a nice quote. We get in this quote a nice summary of the conflict between a people's war and a war of monarchy almost, right? So this is a rather short crisis letter, which gets us to crisis 10. Um, again, this is another really short document, more of a news report on the seizure of Charleston by Cornwallis. So the Southern strategy has been affected. Cornwallis has seized Charleston. And the crisis 10 is more just telling the American people not to panic, not to worry too much, because the war's ultimate outcome is already decided. Um, Britain at best can play whack-a-mole in America, but never conquer the continent. Quote, the decline of the enemy is visible not only in their operations, but in their plan. Charleston originally made them but a secondary object in their system of attack, and that's now become the principal one because they have not been able to succeed elsewhere. It would, have been, it would have carried a cowardly appearance in Europe had they formed the Grand Expedition in 76 as part of the continent where there was no army or not a sufficient one to oppose them, but failing year after year in their impression here. And to the eastward and northward, they deserted their first capital design and prudently contented themselves with what they can get give a flourish of honor to conceal disgrace. So he says, you know, don't worry about it, Americans. This is a sign of the British ultimate failure. And again, we see Payne really being a really wonderful troll. Um, and that's one thing I kept thinking about when reading these crisis letters is how effectively, how modern actually Payne seems to us as essentially a, a troll, commenting on what happens in funny, humorous ways, really making his political enemies seem the fool uh, even when their moment of victory comes about, when they do something victorious, Payne points out that this is just another sign of their ultimate failure and weakness. But this crisis ends with another public call for financing the war. And we get the sense at this part of Payne's writings that he's worried a lot about funding, about taxation, about financing. Um, and he's going to take this up in some later crisis pamphlets. This leads us to the crisis extraordinary. It's not called the Crisis Extraordinary because it's great and brilliant and better than others. It's simply extraordinary in that it's not numbered, right? That's the meaning here. Extraordinary, not ordinal, not, not being numbered. It's certainly not extraordinary in its themes or approach. It's like a rather dull and, and kind of straightforward crisis letter. It's a pamphlet on financing the war and taxation. 
I think the most necessary thing we can say about this crisis pamphlet is that Paine makes a case for the necessity of taxation during a revolution that was begun as a protest against taxation. So what are Paine's central arguments for taxation? Well, he starts out by arguing that taxes in the United States will never reach the levels of Britain, and therefore the U.S. is rich due to its modest government and its lack of debt. Uh, this is something he said before, and he continues his argument that the, essentially he's saying the U.S. can afford to be taxed a little bit. And because the U.S. might tax itself a little bit to pay for the war effort, to support its common defense and its needs, doesn't mean the U.S. is going to go down the path of Great Britain as a highly taxed, highly indebted nation. He, in an earlier crisis letter, he points out point by point how the Americans could create a navy as powerful as Britain's, really without going into debt much at all. Next, he argues that basically America is rich and prosperous. It has revenue. It has resources. And this is why Britain wants America, right? And this is why Britain thinks going into debt to secure America, going into further debt to secure America is worthwhile. That richness is there, and it needs to be applied towards the common defense. This is followed by essentially the need for public financing in general. He's not making a general argument here for taxation. It's not, uh, he does that in other places, but it's just saying in the short term, public funding for the war effort is necessary. It will be necessary for reconstruction. It will be necessary to pay people for all lost property. It will be necessary to pay veterans, other war costs. It's just necessary. Well, what kind of tax then? Payne seems to support the idea of taxing America where it's wealthy, and that is essentially in trade right, an import duty. And um, certainly the United States did pay much of its tax burden on with tariffs. The income tax was not made into law until the early 20th century, until the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, uh, part of the progressive era. So, you know, for the first 120 years, the United States survived on excise taxes and Im import duties and other kind of taxes like that, not a general income tax. So... The next major work of Thomas Paine is called Public Good. It was written in December 1780. And as we can see from this essay, Paine's eyes are already kind of at the post-war period and the management of an independent America. A wall-financed war would mean a prosperous public funding for the war. However, it uh, this paper is really about the promotion of the harmony between the states and the foundation for a harmonious relationship between the states. You might read this and say, this is kind of boring. It's just about Western land claims. And that's certainly what he's arguing. He's arguing that Virginia should abandon their claims in the West, which are vague and expansive. But his deeper argument is that the, these states should be part of a unified political entity and not have animosity between them over things as silly as lands in the West that no one really lives in. His opening point is really not about land law, but, but on the necessity of solidarity. Quote, when we take into view the mutual happiness and united interests of the states of America and consider the important consequences to arise from a strict attention to each and to all, to everything which is just, reasonable, and honorable, or to the evils which will follow from an inattention to those principles, there cannot and ought not to remain adult, adult but that the governing right rule of right and mutual good must be in the public cases finally preside. So in all things, he thinks mutual good and rights must um, predominate. But what does he mean by rights here? Um, his philosophical, philosophical argument about public good here is based on the idea that rights, in the sense legal claims, cannot be based on 
wrongs, right, uh, on previous sins. He made, this is whole, his whole argument against monarchy back in common sense is based on this idea that you can't base a political system on theft, which is essentially what monarchy does. The same right of Britain to rule America is what gives Virginia the right to rule the West. Therefore, it's not legitimate. He goes into this history to show that the early claims of Virginia for much of the continent are based not on the will of the or labor of the people, uh, the efforts of settlers, but on gifts of monarchy to England. The claims that do exist are vague and weak. He envisions instead a future that would take uh, that would take place with the Northwest Ordinance, the plan to settle new states in the West. So he says instead of letting the existing states claim the West, we should allow new people, new states to form in the West. And that's essentially would become law in the Northwest ordinances. He thinks that the land of the West is the collective property of the American people and the rightful destination of immigrants. But now we need to talk about a big problem. What he does not discuss in this paper is the fate of the Indians who live there. I do not think this is a forgivable absence in the discussion. We can't say simply that pain is a product of his times. Uh, he is making, he's clearly blinkered on the issue of Indians. Had Paine wrote other essays dealing with the Indian question, we might be more understanding of his absence of discussion about the Indians here. As far as I know, he didn't write much about Indians anywhere else in his writing. The general philosophical principle of sacrifice for the collective good is fine and dandy, but by what right, to use Paine's own language, do the U.S. have to lands in the West? They would inherit them from Britain who stole them from the French, who stole them from the Indians. It seems that Paine has really got a problem here and really his argument. The logical conclusion of his argument is that the United States has no claims to the lands between the Appalachia and the Mississippi. Um, even if they get them in the peace treaty, which is what that would happen, of course, they would get these lands in the Paris, the Treaty of Paris of, of 1783. But that was still based on a theft. So I, I think pain is a bit contradictory here. So crisis 10. I think I mentioned the previous crisis is 10. That would have been crisis nine, actually, the one on the seizure of Charleston. Um, crisis 10 is in two parts. The first is a response to a speech by the King of England. And the second is a letter on the financing of the war. They're both written in 1782, after Yorktown had already fallen after Cornwallis had surrendered, and after the fighting had more or less ended. The first is Payne back in good form as a troll, mocking mercilessly a speech the king gives that still seems to dream of conquering the Americas. He quotes a bit of the king's speech, and then he would respond to it. So it's kind of almost like uh, someone comment responding to an internet commentary where they would, you know, respond point by point to what's said in, in kind of brackets. And that's how it goes. It reads almost like someone laughing about a ridiculous political speech while at a bar or something. Or maybe it's almost like a mystery science theater episode. You know, it's you hear this king gives a little of his talk and then you have Payne shouting out his commentary on it. It's, it's a lot of fun to read. And it's really based on this idea of how ridiculous it is at this point, at this late point, to still talk to the British people about someday reclaiming America. And the really pompous language is ridiculed and mocked throughout. The second part of the pamphlet of Crisis 10 is, is about funding, is about financing. There's not much to say about the second part of the pamphlet. It just lays out the case that, again, America needs a proper foundation in funding for the war based on taxation. 
America, he says, can afford these taxes. America will be stronger for having taxes. Quote, the Union of America is the foundational stone of our independence, that rock on which it is built, and is something so sacred in her constitution that we ought to watch every word we speak, end quote. Uh, and he goes on to basically suggest that taxation deepens, not weakens, the bonds of mutual harmony and support. So that gets us to um, basically the end of the war, 1782, Payne's writings on that. We see he, him, him moved over the course of the first 10 crisis, first 10 or 11 crisis pamphlets from the, tri, the times at Trimen Soul to essays and writings that are really thinking about what the foundation for post-war stability, post-war harmony between the states, and post-war prosperity for the American people would be. Uh, so with that, I'll sign off. I'll have one more set of, of one more episode on Payne's other crisis letters, the final few crisis letters, and the, some of the essays he wrote during the French Revolution. So thank you so much for listening. Um, please rate, subscribe, comment, share. Um, if you have any comments for me, you can send them to 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I will see you next time. And the plant she named Liberty Tree Beneath this fair tree Like the patriarchs of old Their bread in contentment they ate Unvexed with the troubles of silver and gold The cares of the grand and the great